Welcome to After Hours at the Radio Book Club, a collaboration between KGNU Community Radio and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU. My co-host, as always, Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. And we're continuing our conversation with Erica Krauss about her latest book, a memoir, Tell Me Everything, the story of a private investigation. So do tune in to the radio version of the interview. You'll get a lot more background on what the actual investigation is that Erica was involved in. But this idea of being a private investigator is so enshrined. The concept of private investigation, the PI, is so huge in popular culture. We all know so many TV shows, the films, the books. I mean, this is huge. Arson, we were just talking about this, about how it's just a part of all aspects of culture. Well, Sherlock Holmes is the biggest fictional character that exists in our in our culture. And um, it just and it's been going steady since then. Those stories were written in the 1880s and it's pretty much been nonstop from the 1880s till right now on Netflix. You know, P.I.s are all over the place. What are they getting wrong or what are they getting right, Erica? Because you've actually worked as a private investigator. Right. Um, well, most of it is what they're getting wrong. <laughs> but, um, but you know, uh, and one thing actually I think they're getting wrong is that there are so many male private investigators, and there are, but I've learned in recent years that women are actually preferred for the job to men. Uh, so if, if, you know, if we were being representative, most PIs in popular cu- culture would be female. And it's always been that. And why is that? Because people open up to women more. Uh, women are not considered to be threats as much, honestly, or um, or important sometimes. So people will tell you more if you're a woman. And also um, a lot of the people who have more to say are often women because women become repositories of, of fa- facts, you know, around them. They know they know what's happening in their community. Um, they know what's happening, you know, in in other spheres, people just tell them more. So women talk to women more than women talk to men. I mean, that's really the premise of the whole book. Tell me everything, because, you know, you start the book and and really your career as a private investigator started with this encounter with an attorney in the bookstore where he just says how you know he, he sort of starts talking about his life and am I doing the right job? And he's like, how am I t- telling you all this stuff? I don't tell this to anyone. And it was just the fact that you are, have had this experience, you say, throughout your life where people will tell you stuff. I mean, tell us about that being the kind of person where people, random strangers will divulge their deepest secrets to you. That's always been the case. I mean, inappropriate things, too. When I was a kid, people tell me tell me things that, you know, I, I didn't even understand sometimes. And um, and I don't know what that is. I, I think part of it is just being innocuous, you know, having that kind of face where you look like somebody's third grade best friend um, or you look like someone someone knew once or, or you just look like nobody. And I think that makes people feel more comfortable. And, but beyond that, honestly, I think it's um, just people want, to talk. They want to tell people their stories. And I'm, I tend to be very curious and I ask nosy questions and I ask inappropriate questions and, uh, and maybe shock aside, people really do want to answer those questions. But what impact does that have on you though? Do you become the repository then of their secrets or what defenses do you have to put up so you don't then absorb all of this stuff, especially the case that we're talking about, the Title IX case, um, you were hearing all kinds of stuff. I mean, and there was so many parallels with your own, you know, personal experiences. What defences then do you have to put up so that you don't go home at night and just want to 
you know, dive into the bottom of a bottle of gin because you're hearing just the most awful stories. Maybe you're assuming that I had a healthy relationship with this job and I didn't. <laughs> really. I mean, I I was incredibly porous and I did take everything on and I did want to dive into the bottom of every kind of alcoholic bottle you can conceive of. And um, yeah, I, I didn't have healthy boundaries. I still don't really, um, which is part of why I'm not doing it now. But it's uh, it, I, I've never been able to be callous about that job. So one of the things, you know, reminded me, I was a journalist before I was a bookseller for a few years, and obviously Maeve is a journalist. And one of the tricks of the trade for journalism is sometimes just staying silent because mm-hmm. people will feel the need to fill the silence. Did you find that to be true as a private eye and, and sometimes be surprised by what might come out of silence? That was my favorite trick, you know, and and even like I'm sure you do this with the radio, right? Because if there's silence, it's uncomfortable, right? And people feel the need to fill it, right? Um, but yeah, it, most people are trained, we're trained to fill silence and people will over talk if you just physically close your mouth. That is so funny. I tell that what, you know, I teach people to do interviews or, or different things. I was like, just be comfortable in the silence. It's almost like a game of chicken. I mean, you don't want to mm-hmm. inflict trauma on somebody, but if you leave silence, people will feel that. Right. And it's very often it's that afterthought that could be the most powerful thing in an interview or I would imagine maybe a really valuable piece of information. Right. And I'm sure you, you experience this as well, right? There's You have to know when to be quiet, too. You just don't want to be quiet all the time because then <laughs> it's terrible, right? But, um, but when someone is teetering, when they're about to say something, when they want to say something, you just stay quiet an extra three seconds, five seconds, doesn't take much. And then sure enough, they'll tell you that thing that they want to tell you. Also, people tell you a lot at goodbye. Mm-hmm. You know, as you're about to leave, they they start to feel a little um, separation anxiety because you've been listening to them all this time. And maybe they don't get listened to very much. Maybe these are people who, who don't have an opportunity to talk or express themselves very much. And you're about to go and then they'll tell you the thing. That yeah, I feel like there was one of those in this book. I can't remember exactly which interview, but I feel like you were at a restaurant with one of the uh, younger women and suddenly at almost goodbye you got all this information right i had a question for you Maeve. if that's okay it's a podcast right go for it you know i was a print journalist if you have three to five seconds of silence that's fine how do you do it on the radio or when do you get nervous you can't have at some point you you can't play quite play the game of chicken the same way you can in the print journalism i would think it very much depends on the interview on the tone i mean if you've got a four minute news interview and you gotta get information and it's a policymaker and they're trying to be evasive you just jump in and you get your question answered if you more time this is why i love our podcast and, and the book club because we have much more time to to talk about things you know it's kind of like what you said erica you can't be silent all the time but there are certain pieces that places in a conversation or in an interview where you know you're you're getting to an emotional place or you're getting to a place where there's more and it's those and so I suppose it's just about of leaning into that a mm-hmm. little bit but one of the big things that I always tell people is just get comfortable with that because as humans we're not comfortable with that and we want to jump in with the yes aha and the exclamations we call them positive affirmations which ruins audio for radio and podcasting so you get very expressive with nodding heads and you know smiles or concerned looks different things like that so you're still communicating with the 
the person you're speaking with, but you don't want to jump in and step all over their story because that'll just ruin the audio. I think I probably ruined the audio a few times in this podcast. No, because it's all about you. I mean, we want to hear from you. You don't want to hear from me and Arthur as much. So, no, you're doing great. I'm the one who's ruined every podcast. I'm thinking, why didn't you tell me this like seven years ago? Did I not give you the cheat sheet on day I'm like, one? Sometimes I'm like, uh-huh. I said uh-huh to her earlier. You know, like oh, that's okay. If it was becoming really bad, I would absolutely let you know. Don't worry. It really becomes apparent when you're editing it afterwards. You're like, I've I gotta shut myself up because I'm guilty of it myself. So it's anyway, it's interesting. <laughs> but what you're describing there about getting people to tell you things, it's almost like a psychologist. I would imagine it's a similar dynamic that you have, albeit, you know, you're not developing an ongoing relationship per se, but you are having to really develop relationships because if somebody's giving you valuable information, you need to try to persuade them to maybe do a deposition or be part of a case. So you know, what are some of the, the, the methods that you do that are I, maybe that's a cynical way of saying it, that how do you develop that trust with somebody? Because sometimes it's a contentious. They don't want to be part of this at all. And they don't necessarily want you talking to them or asking them questions. Right, right. There are a lot of techniques that I mean, I say techniques. I, it, really, we learn how to do this stuff. And the more, you know, I was very desperate as a kid. I, I would have done anything to get out of the house. So I learned this stuff pretty well. I, I knew how to make people want to have me around. <laughs> um, and I, I knew what those things were, right? Um, but that's just regular so- socialization. But there are a lot of other techniques that you can kind of use in the conversation, mirroring techniques. Um, you know, sit the same way. Um, if someone's nodding, you nod. If someone's, you know, lean forward, you lean forward. And when they lean back, you lean back to give them space, you know. So there's body language kinds of things you do. Um, there's, you know, alcohol never hurts. It always helps. Same with food. And also there's something that I used to do quite a lot, which is if I wanted information, I gave information. So I would say, you know, hey, you know, this is what we're trying to find out. And I would be very transparent about it. I, I, I tried never to lie. Um but I would say, you know, here's what we know. And and sometimes I would give them information they didn't know. And, you know, given the age ages of most of the people I was talking to, they were college age, you know, they love gossip. <laughs> they love they they want to know everything, right? They're curious. So um so I would get a lot of information by just giving by being very open with the information I had to give and being very open about what we didn't have and what we needed. And I think that made people trust me because y- y- people can tell when you're lying. It's it's pretty clear. And I'm a very bad liar, so I, I didn't even try that. When you started the case, you know, based on what you say in the book, it was almost like you didn't quite know what you needed. Like mm-hmm. you needed to tie the upper level of the university, at least get to the head coach, basically. It wasn't enough that the, a crime was committed. It wasn't enough that these women were raped. You, you had to really go up the chain. Mm-hmm. And when you found that out or when it really hit you that, wow, I, I have to prove more. Like, sure, I'm getting all this great talk about what happened that night in that house. And, that you know, you needed so much more. How, how did that make you feel? You're pretty inexperienced. You know, at that point in time, you weren't, you know, doing being a private eye for that long. I guess, you know, how did you feel about that? And did that change how you had to approach things? It was really hard because I learned how untouchable some of these people are. They, you know, the more celebrity you have, the more of a shell is around you, and the harder it is for someone to really 
find out about you in some ways. Um, but the more bad behavior people engaged in, the more of a tail it left with people that they thought didn't matter. So it was, I, I felt like I was a little bit like, you know, working on the under, understory with the discarded people, with the people who um, were treated like garbage because they weren't, you know, maybe considered by the powers to be anyone who could hurt them. And um, by it was almost like building this this case with with tiny, tiny, tiny piece, pieces. And I don't want to imply that these people were tiny pieces, but the, but you know the it, the pieces of information were were tiny, and they sort of added up to this culture. Really. Yeah, that's really what jumped out at me. I felt that the people you were talking to and the information that you got was reflective of the fact that this was cultural. This wasn't just about these people involved in this rape, this sexual assault or these sexual assaults. It was the entire culture and the whole cover up. And that's why it was so important. The people that you were talking about, we talked about this a little bit in the radio version about the culture of uh, impunity that really in many ways surrounds still athletes speak and particularly footballers because of how we have this almost as a religion and and how then that led to the backlash for you know Daisy one of the characters in in the book who's a woman in the case um was assaulted on the street because people were annoyed with her she was going up against this institution and right. and to me that's who you were talking to and and the case that you were building it was, it was very much part of the entire case but it showed you and it really shone a spotlight on this culture that people were let behave like this and were protected. Right. It was kind of like death by a thousand paper cuts, you know, that like there was the occasion of the lawsuit, which is was this big sexual assault. But there were so many others that we uncovered along the way and other just violations and misogyny and problems and, um, and you know, financial <laughs> breaches and corruption and um, judicial corruption. I mean, there was it was turtles all the way down. I mean, it was amazing, like, to see at how many levels this one, um, one case touched all these different societal problems. So as a pro- we, we started this podcast conversation talking about uh, – you know, the private eye's role in, in our culture, you know, and, and how they're seen. Have you seen, and you talked about what they all get wrong. <laughs> is there any, have you seen, since you've done this, is there anything you've seen in popular culture, movie, book, you know, whatever, that gets to a little bit of what you experience? Is there, do you have a favorite, or maybe there's, they don't get anywhere near you, but you still have a favorite one, something that, there's something that rings true to you at all. I haven't yet found anything that where I'm like, oh, yeah, that's how it is. But I loved that show Lie to Me, <laughs> where um, there are these deception experts. Now, they take it to an extreme, I think, where you can really, you know, positively tell that someone's lying, which is you really can't. You can't do that. But um, but there are a lot of the things that in the show where I was like, oh, I use that. Oh, I do that. You know, I I and. And I don't think they indicate necessarily lying, but they do indicate internal conflict. Um, and I would notice, you know, if someone like shrugged a little bit while they were talking with one shoulder, I'd be like, okay, I have to lean into that, you know. Or if they made made this little micro expression, like I think I talk about it in the book a little bit. Um, actually, I know I talked about it in the book. I know everything is in the book. But, um, but uh, there's a point where you can sometimes even see another face. Someone's talking about someone, and even if they don't name that person, they'll sort of take on their expressions and their mannerisms as they're talking about it. And if you happen to know 
the person they're talking about. You can sometimes match and you can say, oh, you're talking about Joe, you know. That was fascinating to me when I read that part, mirroring or whatever people do. I just was trying to think about circumstances where maybe I, I have seen that. It's very subtle. I mean, you have to be extra, extra perceptive to pick mm-hmm. up on things like that. Uh, yeah, or, you know, desperate, really. <laughs> <clears throat> I think I, I think perceptive people are often desperate. And I, I know that's that was true for me. You know, I um, I just have a lot of hypervigilance, you know, and hyper alertness because of some of the things I've been through. So um, I'll pick up on things just because I, I'm always looking for a problem. So when you had to do this for this case, you had to bring in some of these things that you were doing in your own life, but you probably had to really focus them and hone them and become better at them. Now that you're not a private eye anymore, but you still go to parties, you still have conversations with people. Do you sometimes feel that you're learning perhaps more than you want to learn at a, in a situation? Do you, is there a way to turn it off? Or is that like since you've developed these skills and you really had to hone these things – that it's just always there. I think it's always there. I think it's been there long before the job. And I I thought, you know, with COVID, I thought with the masking, I was like, well, people are going to stop talking to me about stuff. The funny thing is they talk to me about more. With most of my face covered, they would still just, you know, the grocery clerk or the, you know, someone on the street. It was bizarre. And I realized, oh, it's, it really is about people wanting to talk. People want to, they want to unburden themselves. They they want to do it with someone that they feel won't hurt them in return. That is just mind blowing to me. Like, is this in response to you maybe even just saying, how's your day going? Which <laughs> our general social contract means you respond with fine, thanks. How are you regardless of what's going on? <laughs> but instead people burden themselves or is this people will just approach you and just start talking? It usually begins with some kind of contact, you know, Um, but sometimes it is, how are you, you know, and then it can turn into something more um, pretty quickly, sometimes immediately or, you know, and some people, though, they're they're very closed and they just won't. You know, there have been people I've tried to crack and I can't can't get through to them and because they just they don't want to talk. It really is. You have to want to to talk to talk. No one can force you. So do you think you'll go back to writing fiction or have you gone back to writing fiction or will you become a serial memoirist? <laughs> it's it's hard to stop telling the truth once you start telling the truth. I'm just going to say, like, you know, I keep having all these ideas for essays, but then I'm like, oh, gosh, <laughs> then I have more legal problems and more, <laughs> more you know, backlash. Um, so it, it, it's a commitment in a different way. Like nonfiction is a is a commitment and you have to be able to not only write the thing, but stand behind it and fight for it afterwards. Whereas fiction, you can the fight is up front, and then you can let it go, and um, and hopefully it'll get published, and then you know, and then it's a lot, a lot easier on the back end. So that that's definitely the siren that's calling me right now. <laughs> well, there's also a very personal impact on being a memoirist. I mean, you're exploring your own pain. And, you know, we've spoken that these are really two stories. It's your own experience of, of being abused as a child. And actually, there was a piece in the book where you say some people become private investigators to cope with their own pain. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned John Walsh, who's the, the host and the founder of America's Most Wanted, who started that show because his own child was abducted and 
you know, it's a horrifying story, kidnapped and, and killed. Did this help you cope with your own pain being a private investigator in this case on a very similar case because it was about sexual assault? I think it did. I, and I think the reason it did is that the case ended well. I mean, it was it put us through hell the whole time. You know, it wasn't um, it was five years of <laughs> of uncertainty and um, and, you know, some serious lows that where we thought all was lost. But I think in the end, to, to feel that we made a difference, that we did change something that did help me personally, um, because I couldn't change what happened to me. I was too young and I couldn't have changed it anyway. Um, so for me, the only thing that's ever helped me is action. That it's people say time heals all wounds, but I've never found that to be the case. In fact, I think it just sometimes makes them fester. But for me, if there's something I can do, if there's some kind of agency I can have in a situation, then for me, that makes a difference. I mean, I did wonder that if the case hadn't ended the way it did, if this would have exacerbated your own pain in reinforcing the idea that there is no course recourse at all. There's no way to ever find justice. Right. And justice is pretty slippery and it changes every minute. So, uh, you know, I, I, I still do think justice is kind of random. But if you can get a win, <laughs> if you can get, if there can be one point in your life where you did something and it made a change, even just for one person, um, or if it, if it made something better in some way, I think that that goes a really long way. And this made monumental change because it rippled right. far beyond this one university. It went to, you know, NAACP. I mean, it was completely changed policy, right. which we have to assume has really impacted many, many people. It's not quantifiable. You don't know how many people you kept safe, but you have to assume it's in the thousands, you know, that. And again, I was just one player. I didn't do this by myself. You know, I, I was just an investigator. And the real people who, who did this were the plaintiffs and the witnesses and the and the lawyers who, um, you know, who made this happen. However, I, I did, you know, I did help. And that um, that's something I, I'm really proud of. Yeah, I mean, the lawyer, uh, Grayson, who you call him in the book, he, he comes out as a real hero. Mm -hmm. And what was your experience, you know, uh, as a sexual abuse survivor to meet somebody like that and who really seemed to have such a moral compass and such a drive? I mean, that must have been made a big impact on your life, I would think. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe you can just talk about him and, and, and what he did and what he meant for this. I never really met a male authority figure who was so proactive about women's rights. I never experienced that. And um, someone who was willing to risk his own career and everything, you know, his a big chunk of his life and a, and so much of his time and so much of his attention. I, you know, that for me was very impactful. I have a lot of respect for the person I call Grayson, um, he's and he's still a, a great friend, and I I just think he's a genius, honestly. But also he's um, it, it's pretty amazing to to put yourself on the line to try and change law to help um, people that you know belong to a gender you don't even belong to. That was very meaningful to me. The book's been out, you know, for a little bit now, a few weeks. What's been its impact? It's gotten, I mean, it's, it's been great, you know, I, um, it's gotten good, you know, good feedback from people and, um, from, you know, 
critics and all that. But um, but I also I get emails from people, which is is pretty amazing. Uh, people will say, you know, this this book helped me, and here's how. Uh, and that always makes me cry, and I get very shy and have trouble <laughs> responding. But um, but that you know that I really treasure that. Um, there's also been some backlash, and that's been interesting as well. Uh, like I said, you know, with with nonfiction, you have to you have to fight for it afterwards. And I, I've talked to some other memoirists who have experienced similar similar kinds of things. And we have focused so much really on on the story of the university because it was such a huge story. But as we've said, it's your own story woven into it. I would imagine you telling your own story has touched many, many people who have never told their story to anyone. Yeah, I those are the kind of folks that you're hearing from. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't either, you know, and um, so it's I think it's hard. Um, and there there will pe- be people who write me and they'll talk about the book. And I know they're talking about themselves. You know what I mean? Like I, there's a kind of code is kind of this unwritten thing that happens and you can even read in an email where you know there's this almost like this this nod you give each other um and uh so i i do feel like in some ways like a book is a it's like the hub of a wheel and and it can draw different communities together in ways that uh that that you can't otherwise right so you know if i read this book and you read this book and we both have an emotional experience about that book that joins us together even if we never meet and that's the magic of a book I think. Well the book in question is Tell Me Everything the story of a private investigation and it is written by our guest at After Hours at the Radio Book Club Erica Krauss. Erica thank you. Thank you thank you so much for having me. After Hours at the Radio Book Club is the podcast only edition it goes in tandem with the Radio Book Club, which you hear every month on KGNU, and it is a co-production of KGNU and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU. As always, my co-host, Arson Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. Thanks, Arson. Thank you, Maeve.